Criminal Magic, Chapter 13. Wednesday, 8.51, GMT-8. When you meet old friends, you recognize them immediately, even when you've never seen them before. Passing into the lab, Bill tries to refrain from judging the situation at hand. Great, he thinks to himself. Now I'm a babysitter. I'm that special wild horse desperately looking around for a saddle. I got shit to do besides making sure Princess Lost here gets a good feeling about herself. He turns to the young woman walking beside him, his impatience with the situation simmering just below the surface. So you know your way around a lab then? Strictly business. Pill hopes it will lower the temperature of his annoyance. Yes, I mean, as far as I recall, I've done a lot of work in them. I guess gene stuff? Bench work? You done much work on the chemistry end? The good doctor said you had some experience, right? Just keep moving. The more we talk about specifics, the better I feel. They move between rows of stainless steel work surfaces, skirting dozens of men and women whose attention is focused on one aspect or another of various lab procedures. This entire section of the building hums with the incessant charge of neon tubing. Did Hedda tell you anything about what we do here? He stops at a wall rack, whose every centimeter of space is jammed to overflowing with beakers, side racks, tubing, chemical solutions, and wads of laboratory miscellany. He takes a deep breath and reminds himself of the benefits of compassion. Exhaling softly, he looks once again at the girl standing next to him. What's in a name, after all? The old saw has some newly sharpened teeth for her. Who am I is not just a philosophical headbreaker when you literally don't have an answer. Dana nods toward the recently departed doctor. She mentioned that your focus was on engineering, but she also said the work you do is tedious, but ultimately one of the most useful applications of science. I thought that was sort of vague, but... Yeah, Pill cuts her off. The prof's like that. Vague, but brilliant. You know what I mean? I respect her and all, but it gets to be sort of frustrating trying to get tied down to a point. He pushes off from the cabinet and waves Dana to follow. Come on, I'll show you what it's about. They leave the massive lab room and walk through a maze of corridors whose walls are covered with beads of condensed moisture. Steel, he scoffs. Can't even insulate it with spray-on wool, but we've got some people working on it. He stops in front of a door that looks like it was taken from a submarine, complete with locking wheel and cog mechanism in place of a knob. Pill presses a panel with his palm, and the wheel spins, the door swinging wide. Ladies first, he invites, and Dana steps through the open portal. Inside, a factory is humming away. Machines spin, shuttle, stamp stuff, slide, sort, select, and seal, millions of capsules and tablets of various shapes and sizes, into an unending flow of plastic bottles and tubes. The industrial cacophony is deafening. Earplugs! Standard workwear, Pill shouts over the din. Welcome to the Newtown Pharmaceutical Production. Let's just walk through. I'll tell you what we're seeing when we're back outside. He stops at a bin by the entry portal and snags two pairs of poly overalls as well as hats and masks. Put these on. Don't get any hygiene spoofs on our asses. As they tour through the facility, Pill waves and nods at the shrugs and greetings of several workers. As they exit the factory floor through an airlock antechamber, he begins to explain what they've just seen. Not that you were probably wondering at all, but I'm actually director of research and manufacturer for this little workspace. When I was a kid, I had an intense interest in science, and I turned that into a doctorate in chemistry. He ushers Dana out of the lock and continues filling her in as they make their way down a series of halls. Got my chops for the lab thing honed during practical pharmaceutical work, you might say. I had a drug habit, so I built a drug lab. Like a hometown one-stop shop for junkies. He hesitates and looks straight into Dana's lucid eyes. Never could do the retail addict thing. Anyway, that was a long time ago, and now here we are. I see, Dana says, so basically you're here to make drugs? More or less, but not just any drugs. 
See, Dana, down here, we take social equity sort of a lot more serious than the do-gooders uptown. In these labs, we reverse engineer medicinals so that we can distribute low-cost clones to people in the streets. We're patent crackers, pharmaceutical party crashers. So that's like illegal, right? Dana's face reflects snuffing of her attitude. I mean, you could get into a lot of trouble for breaking licensed formulae of drugs. You do catch on quick, kid, Bill says. Newtown's not in the collective, but the idea is similar. Take what you need, leave the rest. And we're definitely right about that trouble thing. We get into thugs and their pushers trying to lever us out of here all the damn time, and believe me, they do not fuck around, but neither do we. It's okay by me, Dana says, shoving one hand deep into her jeans pocket. She reaches up, sweeps a stray strand of hair from her mouth, and pitches Pill a hard stare. At least, as far as I can remember, I don't have any problem with that. Where do I start? Impressive, Pill thinks. The girl's impressive. Now let's see if we can find something for her to do that will do justice to her brains. Let's get back to the lab, he says as he turns to go. Get you hooked up with the folks you'll be working with. Dream time. Rafe watches. Firelight pitches an enormous, distorted wobble of dancers' shadows against the trees encircling the small clearing. They're coming. The certainty of it aches in his body. Good. It's been a long time since Cayman last met Jaguar. Soon, we will rise up again, and when we do, there must be nothing to hinder us. Nothing. From outside the circle of flame, a chant rises from the mouths of the impassioned singers. The leader of the reincarnated Longbones stands astride a white furnace of burning coals. Heat has no effect on this body. Rafe bends backwards, lets his neck go slack, allowing his head to near his heels. His arms fall outward as if in prayer, as sweat rains from his body onto the char glow below his feet. He watches the projection of universal memory he casts against the starred vault of night. Here he is witness to the ancient battle at Chavin de Wantar, several frame images of warriors flying above the transect plaza of the Great Pyramid. Many came and dead, ripped, scattered like grain, unwittingly split from a tear in a vendor's bag. Atop the great temple, the rampant winged jaguar tears on massive hind legs as the scythe swing of its bloody claws drip at its breast as he loses a victor's roar. He exults as the slaughter of time's own kind by his pretender people rolls on. A low moan rises from Rafe's throat. It is an ancient lament that floods out of his mouth and flows down the burning mass he stands on, rushing like heavy water away from the spring. The stars blink out, eclipsed by the darkness of vile memory. Vengeance will be undiluted by mercy. For this reason, purpose does not waver. Outside the fire, dancers undulate and shake, their steps frenzied by the anguish of common hatred. Within the flames, Rafe watches. It is his work. On the screen of the heavens, he sees the destruction of the sacred place. Small men, men who would be better suited for food than labor, strain to destroy what has been since before time. Their machines tear at the skin of the world, ripping and rending, pushing relentlessly toward the highland refuge of the Cayman. In the distance looms the sacred mountain. Rafe knows the lake, the Amati, is in their path. His moan transmutes into a roar, defiance lances the darkness. Undulating, weaving as they circle the enormous blaze, the followers of the Longbones cult move within the compass of an ancient trance, chanting as they sway, We who always have been, we are who will always be. Red clay dust rises into the night air, chilled under a cloying jungle heat. The stench of freshly spilt bile settles on the opening, immense shadows strain to escape the fear of this place. 
Another image laminates itself on the roof of the world. Rafe sees himself from above. The hungry man. The one who works with plants. The captive heart. The alone man. I am the answer. The solution. A defense against the mindless worker bees and minions of the pretender jaguar. His chest heaves and spit runs from the corners of his mouth. Rafe is in an agreement unlike any other. It is a pact made with the Cayman itself, but Rafe cannot possibly understand what he has agreed to. He only believes he does. From the moment he began experimenting on the Amati, Rafe became ensnared in a trap laid millennia earlier. No one among the Uwa dared touch Amati. From the smallest child to the blindest crone, everyone knew that the spirit of Still, the ancient enslaver, had not been eliminated in the long-ago battle at Charin de Wantar. They were aware, truly aware, from countless retellings of the myth, that Still's spirit lived on in the vast upland forests, mingling with the mists of mountain high places. It's evil, its power to captivate, imprisoned only by a lack of a body. For this reason, the people never went too high up on the mountain, never visited the lake, absolutely never touched the Amati. It was well known that among the civilized people of the Orinoco, behind the flimsy curtain of human desire, the spirit of Still, servant to the Cayman, was waiting to emerge at the very first chance. For 3,000 years, no one had been fool enough to challenge the convention of wisdom upon which the old tale was based. And now, that chance had appeared in the form of a stranger. But Rafe is ignorant of his trespass. His innocent curiosity provided the opening that the ancient ephemeral spirit had been waiting for. At first touch, the naive scientist was captivated by a love affair whose only possible outcome was personal obliteration. But, as with all hapless lovers, he knew nothing of that. The Cayman spell filled this prospective chalice drop by drop. Each time the inquiring scientific mind applied itself to the project of discovering the properties of Amati, that was another tendril of the seduction, wrapped around his soul. Initially, the symptoms of his capture were so subtle that no change could be detected. There was no frenzy of zealotry, no intemperate behavior. It would not do for Rafe to announce to the likes of Ramon that he had noticed anything unusual in himself. Patience was at the heart of the spell's ability to succeed. First, slowly, there grew within Rafe an insatiable desire to know more about the Amati. Then, after a reasonable period, curiosity about the actual manner, the rites and rituals in which the ancient herb had been used, began to grow. Gradually, he found himself working more and longer hours, fueled by a newfound passion to work almost exclusively on the Amati project. His reservations about the legitimate conflicts between process and outcome began to fade. Ethical boundaries eroded, retreating to the point where any research methods were acceptable. Over the years, Rafe began to act in ways he would never have condoned previously, but by then, his wishes were no longer of any consequence. He had been given over. What mattered now was that he be the portal, Cayman's way back from the banishment of forever. Today, the sound of his own name bitters in the scientist's mind. Pity these moderns have a need for names. Rebirth is near. The timeless ephemeral character of Still, magnificent servant of Cayman, emerges from the shadow of Rafe's obsession. Still feels himself flexing, nearly able to breathe once more. Things are moving. It took nearly three years after the first ritual to subvert enough of Rafe's naive self so that when Still's impulse advocated for Rafe to recruit co-workers whose ambitions would be in harmony with the end project of the Amati, Rafe willingly began looking for followers. All his resistance to the inevitable outcome, all his balking, was met with a tactical retreat, followed inevitably by a later resurfacing of the notion, recast as if it were a novel first appearance of the idea. 
Persistence was Stills' long suit. By the time it came to enlist others in the project, Rafe acted on the belief that it was his own idea, well vetted. He needed others to carry out his plan. It would be easier. Four more years passed before Stills' grip on Rafe and through him his followers was strong enough to begin organizing them to perform the old rituals again. The first time Rafe kidnapped someone for ritual sacrifice, he was terrified, torn between shame and amazement at the violence he was contemplating. He acted alone. The sensation he experienced in each step of the rite was, to his partially conditioned mind, something that lay on the border between a fully psychotic experience, replete with hallucinations and disembodied voices, and the full-blown ecstatic transports of a lover whose desires are satisfied after years of frustrated attempts at seduction. He was simply unable to stop himself. He had prepared the amati, added the forbidden ingredients, and then, although he didn't know it, he began to fall out of existence, supplanted forever by a master newly risen from the mists of the Cayman's Lake. Later, when Rafe began his first tentative exploration for adherence among his lab workers, he was surprised how easy it was to convince a prospective novitiate to sign on. With great care, and over a long period, he had managed to recruit 11 followers. If any shame remained in what was left of Rafe Kohler about what he was creating, it was well disguised behind a relentless pursuit of the goal. Once, Rafe found himself marveling at the ease of convincing ordinary-seeming men and women that murdering innocents was an acceptable part of any goal. It appeared to him, in an unusually reflective moment, that men's willingness to sacrifice the well-being of others for a measurable increase in their own was a depressingly reliable constant in the human character. The aspect of Rafe that was supplanted by Still would have found nothing novel about such a discovery. Still's master, the Cayman, had long relied upon the knowledge that ego, the central aspect of the will to power, is easily lured to extremes in its pursuit of promise, as lewdly grand as that of eternal life. Of all the gods Still had seen worshipped, the self was inevitably the one with the greatest number of adherents. The reawakened spirit of Still, standing amid the towering flames clad in the body of Rafe Kohler, speaks, demands that Rafe rise up, strengthen, until his long body is once again fully erect. The dancers stop where they are, frozen mid-step like a sudden sculpture. Objects appear in the outstretched arms of their leader. There, within the scald and strike of the withering flame, Rafe, for the moment fully possessed, raises his arms. In one hand, he holds a frog, and in the other, a severed human hand. With tremendous force, he slams the frog into the glowing embers and crushes it with his heel, blindness for the seer, death to the jaguar's messenger. And with that, he stuffs a pallid finger into his mouth and scissors it free from the hand with his teeth. He heaves the rest of the bloody member out toward the frenzy of dancers, chews once and swallows. And into the dead place, into the circle of wavering light and bottomless darkness, he bellows the defiance of his kind. Life from death. Death to life. It is near. Rebirth is coming. Soon. Wednesday, 9.26, GMT-8. Pillhead John walks out the door of the lab complex and nearly mows Collie Gray down. As Collie totters, Pill grabs him with one burly hand. Whoa, hold up, Scout! Pill drops the hand he snapped on Collie's chest. You keep walking around like that, somebody's gonna take you off spook-like. You haven't gone vampire on me, right? Sorry, man, Collie apologizes, rubbing his eyes. Lots of coffee, next to no sleep, bad combination for paying attention. You want to stay out of the street with all that happening. Pill throws an arm around the smaller man. Which way are you going? Let me bodyguard you for a while. I had some shit I was wanting to run by you anyway, alright? 
Sure, yeah, tell me what you got, Phil, my boy. I'm fully tuned to your channel, at least until I fall unconscious. Collie shakes his head, as if to clear it. When are you going to get off my ass with that Phil thing, man? Pillhead asks. Makes me feel like a dog that lost his name tag. He kicks idly at the ground. Anyway, here's what's up. Are you plugged into how many people who have never drifted a day in their lives are showing up in the precinct these last few weeks? Man, we got like 1,500 new Gs on the intake manifest. Signs of life in the land of Oz, Collie says. In my semi-conscious days, I've been wondering the exact same thing. What's up with the jump in numbers? An amazingly short woman dressed in plumber's pants and wearing a belt hung with a dazzling array of test equipment accosts the two men, blocking their progress down the outside corridor. Excuse me, fellas, I don't want to break up your love fest or anything, but I am fresh out of ideas, so could one of you boys sign this form for me? Com system's got a glitch in it, big as Sioux Falls, and the ball breakers and resource acquisition just keep skiffing me off to the next person, which displays a disturbingly short-term neuron deficiency, if you know what I mean. No parts, no calls, no function, meltdown, general social piss-off. Get the picture? Help me. All right, Peggy, no sweat, Collie says, scrawling his signature across the page. Go give him hell. He turns back to Pillhead John. When I put this question to Alden over at Intel, he just shook his head. He said he was tracking it, but he wasn't sure what was going on. I, I know, we spent a metric shit ton on security, so our little rabble hood doesn't get waylaid Gaza style, but I'm not thrilled with the meager return on investment of all this, particularly when this kind of shit is going down. Alden said it looks like there's a full court press on several Indu sectors to discharge as many inessential laborers as possible. It makes no sense. I mean, right now the demand cycle's at a five-year high. There's so much compression in the system, it's practically impossible for the manufacturers to keep up. Does that include imports? Pillhead pinches the subject a little harder. Because if it does, then maybe what we're looking at is a good old-fashioned squeeze play. Tell me more, Collie says. Check it, Pill says. The Indu boys are down here sniffing for a way in, poking, prodding, hoping to get under us and turn us over, right? Problem is, we got resources pushback. So along comes some newbie right out of prep school who sees things like an accountant. You want to flush this white trash metropolis right out to sea? Work it to death. They control the housing inventory for their workers, right? Low-wage earners got no hold on a mortgage. One morning, you wake up, your company job's gone, your house gone with it. You're on the street. What do you do? Where do you go? You end up here. They arrive at Collie's apartment. Listen, Collie says, I'm going to drop you off here. I just have to get some rest or I'm worthless to anybody. I'm hanging out the death to intruder sign and blowing everybody off for 24 hours. So they're not interested in a fight anymore. Just push needy people down our gullible, big-hearted throats until we choke. Is that it? Full house, Bill grins maliciously. Vicious is sick, man, but it's an excellent strategy. Press us both sides. Straight up confrontation to keep us working the perimeter mixed with a squeeze on our population. Gotta admire it in a weird sort of way. Pill looks up for a moment. A certain admiration of the calculus involved perks through his head. That kind of thinking is the product of certified grade-A pricks. It's genius. If I had the chance, I'd pin a first prize ribbon to the shirt of the grad school frat boy who thought this shit up. Sincerely, I would. Tack it to his shirt front with an ice pick. He glances as if some random idea was passing low overhead. That is, if I couldn't hire him first. Pillhead John shakes his head and turns to go, leaving Collie with a whole new problem to occupy his habitually sleepless nights. Wednesday, 13-12, GMT-5. Answer doesn't realize he's fallen asleep until he is jolted awake by a sharp crack from outside as the old plane hits a wash of turbulence. His reflexes stiffen his legs almost unconsciously in an unintentional flight reflex, giving his body, just an instant, the appearance of a bound ragdoll in restraint. Whoa, chief! Renee reaches over to contain Answer with one meaty arm. That's a perfectly right and proper sound in this old lady. Little bouncing goes a long way when you're nigh on 80. 
Answer looks intently out of the cockpit window, catching a first glimpse of greenery below scattered clouds. How long? he asks as he relaxes back into his seat. You mean how long you been out or how long we got to go? Renee grins. I ain't never known you to fall asleep around company, son. You must either feel mighty secure or mighty resigned. And to be honest, I don't know which I should worry on more, me. Why don't we leave out the speculation of the state of my psyche, okay? How long until we are on the ground? Answer grumps. You the boss, Renee drawls. Looking at around 25 minutes to the strip. Their turboprop skips a little lower, shuddering and bouncing a few more times before clearing the lowest cloud layer and opening up views of their destination. San Sebastian sits at the boundary between the Great Plains of northern South America and the tip of the Andes pushing up towards the Caribbean. The elevation gives something of a break to the otherwise sweltering temperatures of the rainforest further to the south and east, but the average day still manages to be miserable in ways that Anser and Renee can relate to intimately. From the air, the town looks something like the bullseye of an enormous green dartboard. It's little more than a collection of not-impressive colonial-style buildings surrounded by rudimentary cobblestone streets. Somehow, it has become the home base of the ecotage movements in the area, especially Amazon Direct, the one that's managed to hold off the FARC and its quick response teams through a mixture of bravado and well-placed bribery. As a result of this relative liberty, the town has become an international cause celeb, a tiny free state within the narcocracy of Colombia proper, attracting the best and worst of environmental movements worldwide. After a roundabout approach, Rene begins to drop the plane down toward a tiny runway on the outskirts of town. Buckle up, y'all! He calls toward the rear of the fuselage. You got yourselves a get-right-with-Jesus cowboy at the wheel. The plane grounds with an aggressive squeal at the tires and practically no sensation of actual landing. Rene taxis to the opposite end, where a small group of people stands waiting. Two of them are younger locals, both standing behind wheelbarrows, but one man stands quite literally, head and shoulders above the others, obviously European or North American. Rene pulls the plane to a stop just off the landing field and kills the engines. He and Anser step out of the cockpit, lower the external door, and all four descend the staircase into the palpable heat of the day. Rene summons the two boys with a wave as he opens the cargo door. Wheelbarrows. Que rustica. Anser, Luz, and Coordinator cross over to the group gathered at the field's edge. As they approach, they can see that the tall man has an exocast on his left lower leg, and his face is bruised in several places. Coordinator strides up to him. Whatever you've got, I hope it's not catching, she jokes, shaking his hand. Station's coordinator, Pacific Northwest. These are my associates, answer. Lose. That's Renee back at the plane. The man nods and grins. Accidents happen, he says, tapping lightly at the cast on his leg. Freak accidents, sometimes. Name's Jack North. Just about everybody here calls me Norteño. Renee and the two boys walk back from the plane. Well, Norteño says, if that's everything you got, let's move. I'm supposed to take you up to Amazon Direct's local headquarters, so you'll be riding with me. He leads them across the grass field to a waiting Toyota Land Cruiser with a couple extra jump seats welded on the back. The two boys heave the bags up onto a roof rack and then climb onto the running boards as coordinator, answer, Luce, and Renee climb into the back. Everybody sit, their driver calls from the front. All right, then. The engine coughs to life, and they head off onto a dirt road paralleling the landing strip that leads into the small town. Wednesday, 1323, GMT minus 5. Rafe has never been fond of heat, and today is no exception. Wouldn't even be here if it weren't for this business, he grumbles to himself. A deep uneasiness pervades his spirit. This is not good. These people... He pushes it out of his mind. It's a waste of effort. As far as Rafe is concerned, time away from the laboratory in Maracaibo is time wasted. The urgency he feels has become like an unremedied ache. It's as if he can't keep himself detached, but he yanks himself back to the moment. 
The collective is a force to be reckoned with, and to duck a meeting with its representatives would be needlessly provocative in light of his other interests. Sweat wrings his neck as the windless day punishes his impatience with its own natural carelessness. Senor Raif! Ramon's voice comes from behind. Buenos dias, Ramon, Raif says. I didn't see you coming. No importa, nods the older man. I saw you. Raif knows this is so. This is the Uawe, without doubt. No question ever gets a straightforward answer, especially with Ramon. The aging shaman is wired for investigation, and every question only leads to another. What brings you into the village? Both of them know it's a disingenuous question. Rafe angles his head around to get a better look at the older man. Same thing that brings you, Ramon. Inclines his head, pushes his jaw down the dusty truck advancing on them from the hill. Visiting strangers. Rafe stares at the shaman's heavily lined face. This sense of things would have captivated and amazed the old Rafe, but now, as a result of his growing transformation, he only finds the fact nettlesome. The Uwa have a knack for catching hold of unexpected information. The sound of their guest's arrival shakes the two men as the ramshackle Toyota shudders to a stop on the cobblestones in front of them. Coordinator steps down from the truck and advances toward Rafe and Ramon. Hello, she thrusts out a hand. Collective station coordinator from Northwest Region. You're taller than I thought you would be, Ramon says. His comment is nearly a whisper, inaudible to everyone but coordinator. She bends down towards him, trying to get a better fix on what he's saying. His hand feels like pliable leather, soft, durable, and warm, surprisingly. Pardon me? I didn't, uh... More is here than you seek, Ramon says, the words barely making it to her ears. Do not take a step back, no matter what shows itself. Only darkness awaits those who retreat. Coordinator nearly startles away from the old man, but his hand, gently resting on her arm, restrains her with an alarming strength. She rises slowly, as if she had recovered a kiss on the cheek from a beloved aging uncle, a pleasure to meet you, Don Ramon, she smiles, wondering to herself what the hell is going on. Rafe waits impatiently to greet her. What is the old fool doing? Why is he here? Welcome to the front lines, coordinator, Rafe flashes his best salesman smile. Glad to see the collective hasn't lost interest in its relationships with non-aligned council members. Coordinator sticks strictly with protocol. Mr. Kohler let me introduce my associate answer, his friends Luce and Rene. Rene was good enough to fly us up here this morning. As she goes through the motions of introduction, Coordinator senses tension between the older man and Rafe. What is unseen here is more significant than what is on display. That she is sure of. Luce has stepped down in time to hear the shaman's words of warning to Coordinator. More than you seek. She is certain of that. No stepping back and no retreat. How does that fit into the dream? Their eyes catch. She nods her head ever so slightly towards Ramon, and he blinks quickly, as if trying to evade the glare of early sun and a light blue halo briefly shimmers around him. An ancient soul. Luz knows he is the one from her dream, the one seated by the path, the warning man. Answer takes in the Pueblo's features, the tired, stepped sway of the roofs, the yellow-tinged lime-wash white of finished adobe, thatched sunscreens over open patios, dogs as big as cats, hugging the shade wherever they find it. From beneath his sunglasses, he brushes aside coordinator's in invitational introduction with a curt nod of greeting aimed more or less at both men at once. Kohler, answer thinks. Christ's sakes, it's hard to believe that after 20 years I would run into that narrow-minded fuck out here. Goes around, comes around, I guess. No getting away from a good time. Excuse me, he says to no one in particular. If you don't mind, I'm just going to take a few minutes to stretch my legs. I'll be back, yeah? Hold on there, Renee says, already feeling antsy and impatient. I'll keep you all company. Gotta shake a leg myself, you know. As the two of them step away from the others, Renee gives his friend an elbow. Those boys back there are about as tight ass as ticks, wouldn't you see? And old geezer, you know, he's got that whole megawatt mojo thing going on, seriously. Him and Sister Luz got a little direct connect, brah. 
Very under the hat and all, but strictly one-on-one. -on -one, know what I'm saying? Shit's going on, brah. No doubt. Shit is going on. He rubs his hands together briskly. Maybe we get a little more than sightseeing while we up this way, huh? Maybe could be interesting. Rafe's gaze follows the retreating backs of the two newcomers. Something familiar in that fellow answer, but his mind cannot find the room for further investigation. The tickle of memory fails to raise a scratch as Rafe turns his attention back to Coordinator. Norteño waits his turn. He's well known for his ability to wait. Among the boys, he's renowned for the endless hours he's spent lying beside trails in preparation for an ambush. He tells the young men and women whom he works beside that there is no strength beyond the ability to wait for the time. If you cannot do that simple thing, you will never win. The enemy waits. They are full to bursting with accidental patience. The key to all success is knowing that you have time. You have as much time as you decide, not an instant less. And Jack North would lie in a ditch or hang limp-limbed in a tree for many hours, days if need be, until the reason for his waiting came within range. Only then would he rouse himself from the near coma of readiness and achieve the objective. Only when the work was done was the waiting over. As Jack stands by, he too sees the play of energies flowing between the men and women standing by the truck. He senses the tension between the ancient shaman and Rafe Kohler. Kohler and North never have gotten along. Something about Rafe never seemed right to Jack. Arrogance or a faint stench of superiority. Secrets? Who knows? Something. For over a decade, the two men have worked in league with one another. In the beginning, Jack felt there was a connection of commitment that he shared with the scientist. There's a financial link, certainly, since Rafe is the district funding controller for both social development projects and direct action. But that old sense of like-mindedness has gradually faded. And now, it seems to Norteño that there's been a distinct disconnection between their perceptions of purpose. In the last two or three years, he has felt instinctively that Rafe is only loosely connected to the cause which excuses Amazon Direct's presence here among the Uwa. Sometimes it almost seems like he's got his own agenda and all the rest is just a bunch of pieces on some scaled-up game board. He catches his mind wandering off. Maybe you could show us where we're staying and we could have a sit-down over lunch? Coordinator is smiling at Rafe. She's staying on point regardless of everything else going on. No sense getting distracted by all the weird personality shit around here. What is it with these people? And Luz, what's going on with the guy Ramon? Must be some witch thing. Excellent idea, Rafe says. He's only too happy for the opportunity to get away from these people and have time to collect his thoughts. You can settle yourselves, and then we can reconvene for lunch and get some work done. Answer and Renee reemerge from an alley just uphill from the group. In five minutes, they've managed to recon the ville, and Renee is getting hungry. Y'all, a large person like myself, I've got to have fuel a bit more on the regular than you smaller folk. Stoke the engine, you know what I mean? Personally, I'm hoping these locals got some suitable grits a man can grub on me. I could use at least a couple of those smaller person's meals, and that says nothing about my thirst. No worries, Renee says answer. I'm sure these good people will take care of that big belly of yours. Hey now, Renee pushes against the smaller man. No need to get all uppity and offensive like. Not like I'm blowed up. What you mean big belly? Rafe, Norteño, and Coordinator are already in the truck when Answer and Renee arrive. Lucita, Answer hitches his head up in the direction of the vehicle. Mount up, little sister, you get left. Looks to me like there's only so many seats. No, Luz loops a dismissive wave at him. You go. I'll stay a while and talk with Señor Ramon. Sure you ain't hungry? Renee says. Looks to me like you use all the chow you could get, small as y'all. Answer pulls his friend toward the truck. It's clear from the look on Luz's face that there is no room for arguing. She will be staying with Ramon. Answer shoves Renee into the back seat, slams the door, and mounts the side rail as the truck moves off toward Amazon Direct's headquarters, located on the hill at the upper end of the village. Later, he shouts, but his words just fall on Luce's back.
We will be back next week with Chapter 14 of Criminal Magic. Please join us for that, and if you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review, and tell friends about this podcast.